0: Hi, Greg Perry, the Historical Preservationist, episode 214. Um, Let's talk about architectural glass and the evolution of storefronts. Um, A storefront is a sales costume. No other building type has quite been so dominated by fashion. Uh, Trends change with technology from storefronts made of wood to those of cast iron, embossed sheet metal, And marble. But the critical design detriment has always been the glass. Tamper with the size or shape of a shop window, and you're tampering with the heart of a storefront's period character. So it makes all too clear. So from the many paned windows of the late 18th century shopfront to the art deco and streamlined modern facades. Of the 1930s and 40s storefront designs were repeatedly transformed by breakthroughs in glass technology there are two good reasons why glass has been so essential in storefronts the larger the windows the more daylight can stream into the store no small concern in the days before electric light and the larger the windows the more wares a shopkeeper can display to lure passers-by. Nevertheless, glass, glass has been the one storefront material most often overlooked by scholars and restorers. So let's talk about residential stores. Glass manufacturing was America's first industry, but one of the last to succeed under the direction of Captain John Smith, America's first glass house and first factory of any kind that was built in Jamestown in 1608. It apparently lasted all of a year. And in 1769, edition addition to the Pennsylvania Gazette, Casper Wister advertised between 300 and 400 boxes of window glass in stock in five different sizes in his Philadelphia store, next to the ben benjamin franklin's house but apparently wasn't until 1792 when the boston crown glass company began operations that an american company was able to consistently produce glass at a profit the crown glass of the company's name referred to the kind of glass most commonly made at the time a blob of, of hot glass was gathered at the end of a pipe and blown into a bubble. A pontil iron, or ponty, was then attached to the opposite end of the bubble and the blow, type was, blow pipe was cut away, creating sort of a uh, fishbowl-type shape. This was exposed to intense heat, with the open side so in, <clears throat> this, toward the furnace and spun rapidly until centrifugal force produced a flat disc or crown of glass, four or five feet wide. The crown was removed from the putty, put in an annealing oven, where it was gradually cooled and then cut into pieces. Crown glass was expensive and wasteful. Large panes of glass were impossible because of the bullseye or lump of glass in the center where the disc had been attached to the punty. But even several inches cut out from the bullseye, crown glass was still thick and wavy. What remained could only be carved into small pieces. The typical 18th century and early 19th century storefront featured shop windows made of many of these small panes set in wood muttons like the windows in the Alexandria, Virginia storefront that still exist today. In fact, shop windows looked a lot like typical parlor or dining room windows of the day. Consequently, stores were residential in scale and character. Not too surprising, since the typical cobbler shop or apothecary was usually the first floor of the merchant's house. So, Let's talk about crown glass. The earliest storefront, a crown glass shop window, was essentially an oversized house window. Both shared the same construction. Multiple panes, or we call them lights, set in a wooden sash. Individual panes were installed, much as they are still today, by, number one, back-putting the sash opening, number two, securing the pane with glazing points, and three, finishing off the exterior in a bed of putty beveled between the sash sash edge and the glass surface. Glazing putty was made from linseed oil and chalk. Points were snips of either end, zinc or steel, and pegs were whittled from wood. Authentic uh, (coughs) replacements for crown glass are not to be had. So retaining cracked or split panes is a better choice than reglazing with sound but visually different glass. These defects can be installed without success by cementing some uh, cyanoacrylic, which is called crazy glue, or special glass adhesives from say Acme uh, Mariglass. Cementing glass has its shortcomings, such as yellowing or tricky application But it's still a better option than losing a pane. it also pays to deserve it it also pays to disturb existing glass as little as possible to avoid any kind of breakage or crackage old putty that was flaking only in places is best gently removed and then touched up with new even if, if this means an uneven look in the final job where putty has become cracked or loose and complete removal is necessary Some methods for cleaning out the old work become too risky. In prying or chiseling out defective putty, the glass may accidentally be broken through impact. Softening with heat tools, such as torches or irons, invites thermal cracks. The slower but safer technique is to work chemically. Alkali preparations uh, will break down the linseed oil binder. They should be applied carefully to minimize contact with glass, which might become etched, and wood where the grain will be lifted. Methylene chloride paint strippers and solvents, such as lacquer thinner, also work in some cases. For solvents where new glass has to be supplied, there are alternatives. Hand-blown cylinder glass, sometimes marketed as restoration glass, lacks the distinctive semicircular waves of true crown glass, but shares aspects of the pre-industrial look. It is often sold in two grades, the less refined, which matches crown the best. Today, only the crown glass bullseye or bullions are produced for decorative use, such as door lights, and true panes are unavailable. Bullseye glass, though not historically accurate, may also be an acceptable stand in. It is sometimes possible to select new individual panes with less pronounced waves and punty marks, which will blend adequately for the application. So let's talk about some early commercial. The cylinder method of glass production has been around as nearly as the 11th century, but it wasn't until the 19th century when it was widely adapted as a small assembly line of skilled workers were required. Cylinder glass began with the usual glassblower's bubble, but instead of blowing the bubble into a wide globe, the blower let it hang down from his pipe and swung it over a pit as he worked, creating an elongated shape. From time to time, a gatherer added additional glass, increasing the size of the long bubble until it became a slender cylinder. Once the blowpipe was detached and the cylinder cooled, it was slit down the top with a hot iron, laid on a smooth slab, and reheated. As it softened, it opened and flattened out from its own weight. Another worker ironed it with a sort of wooden hoe, but the outer surface of the cylinder, always larger than the inner one, inevitably wrinkled and puckered as the iron worker worked. And the finished product was often more suitable for a fun house than a storefront. So the author of a 1883 handbook described one cylinder blown under an evil star. This sheet of glass had embedded in it every possible defect. The founder, skimmer, gatherer, and the blower have all stamped their brand upon it. It is seedy. The, the vesicles elongated by the extension of the cylinder. It is stony, disfigured, with the gathers blisters, and blisters from the pipe, badly gathered, badly blown, thin here, thick there, entirely worthless. The big attraction of cylinder glass was that there was no bullseye, so it was possible to make larger panes, one cylinder now, At the Corning Glass Museum is an impressive seven feet tall and 20 inches in diameter. Indeed, cylinder glass became so popular by by 1850, no crown glass was being made here after that. Meanwhile, the Industrial Revolution was moving industry away from the craft shop and into the factory. The city store was quickly becoming a retail outlet for the new factory produced goods and frontier trading posts were being replaced by general stores. The larger glass cylinder window pane is a godsend for the hordes of new retailers in new commercial space. The old many-pane shop windows with its imposing wooden grid didn't let much light in and was more a barrier than an enhancement for shoppers. Sure enough, between about 1830 and 1860, The size of the panes used in shop windows invariably increased, appearing 2 over 2 or 3 over 3 on either side of the shop entrance. Storefronts were beginning to look less like oversized houses and more like glass-laden facades as we know today. Let's talk about the cylinder press. Cylinder glass was the technological bridge between the small, wavy panes of the crown method and large, optically clear plate glass. When it first came into its own as storefront glass in the 1840s, cylinder glass was a hand-blown product glazed 2 over 2 or 3 over 3 into wooden sashes. By the time it was eclipsed for commercial work by plate glass, Sheets were being produced on the order of four by six feet for use in the new cast iron storefronts. The glazing methods used for cylinder glass changed along with storefront construction, but were never elaborate. Wooden sashes used the same system of putty and points, usually wooden, (coughs) described for, for crown glass and can be maintained the same way today. Cast iron employed a wooden frame to hold the glass and take up the differences in expansion and contraction between the two materials. The frame typically was cut out of a deep inset or rabbit on one side to receive the glass, much like the smaller window sash, and was anchored to the iron framework. The glass was usually set from the inside and held in the rabbit by substantial strips of wooden molding either nailed or screwed, into the frame. Putty or or asphalt compounds were commonly used to bed the glass. But in many cases, if it was set dry, a coat of exterior paint provided the final seal. The details of cylinder glass installations vary from storefront to storefront, but some common points are worth mentioning. Old glass is, again, very prone to breakage in part because of the cylinder method produces imperfect annealing. New glass is tricky to cut for the same reason and must be worked on the surface that once was the inside of the cylinder, distinguished by raised bumps or pimples. That's our indicator. The thickness of the glass is not uniform and it must be supported on the base cloth or piece of velvet to distribute the pressure of scoring when making a cut. When setting glass in a cast iron type frame, care should be taken not to toenail or toe screw the securing molding into the frame and put pressure on the glass. Instead, fasteners should be orientated vertically. Replacement cylinder glass is available from several manufacturers and importers. In some instances, it can be also purchased from large volume picture framing companies who take it out of old pictures. Insulating sandwich of cylinder glass and wooden window glass are also manufactured by some firms. These are special order products for use where the look of historic glass is desired, but a high R value is necessary. Let's talk about bent glass. Bent or slump glass is a kind of sheet glass that is reformed into curves of varying degrees. Although evidence suggests that this process was used Probably with cylinder glass as early as 1843, bent glass truly came into vogue in the late Victorian storefront. Later, its popularity reached a high point in both plate and structural glass. Then it was used to form the aerodynamic surfaces of the art modern storefronts. Bent glass is a special order product still custom made by a small number of firms in America. To make it, A flat sheet of glass is placed over an iron mold corresponding to the desired curve, and both are heated gradually in a kiln. When the glass is a little (laughs) above red heat, it becomes a bit plastic-like and takes the form of the mold through its own weight. Once molded glass are slowly cooled, the finished product can be removed. The maximum curvature for the bent glass process is 180 degrees. Acute bends do not stand up well. Irregular contours, though, are readily manufactured as the compound curves like OG's bent bent glass cannot be cut once it is formed. So the measurements must be accurate the first time. So let's talk about plate glass. So it it took a full-blown industrial revolution to bring about the next dramatic change in storefront design, the shift to wide plate glass display windows, setting cast iron skeletons capable of supporting them. Plate glass had been around since the late 17th century when the French developed it, or rather rediscovered and redefined an old Roman method, but making plate glass was a time-consuming and costly undertaking, so for almost two centuries it was used exclusively in mirrors for the wealthy. Molten glass was poured onto a cast iron table, rolled smooth with large roller iron, and slowly cooled until it emerged in a sheet of very hard glass of uniform thickness. However, contact with the table and roller left the surface ruffled and did not very transparent, so the plate glass was painstakingly ground and polished until it was brilliantly shiny and almost optically perfect. By the mid-1800s, polished plate glass imported from Europe was being used in an increasing number of city storefronts. Ordinary window glass was already being made all over America, but only a few uh, domestic glassmakers had attempted to make the more expensive, more beautiful plate glass, and they'd failed miserably and quickly. The one Man most responsible for reversing the situation was Captain John B. Ford in 1880. After several failures, Ford built a new glass works in Crichton, Pennsylvania, and using low-cost gas as fuel, finally was able to produce plate glass as a profit. This operation became the Pittsburgh Plate Glass Company in 1883. Boosted by the commercial building boom already underway, the American plate glass industry, led by Pittsburgh plate glass, took off. For shopkeepers, plate glass was like a dream come true. It was optically perfect and could be produced in unprecedented large panes, panes made from the slender hand-blown cylinders. Remember, were usually no more than only four feet wide. Simultaneous advancements in the manufacture of architectural cast iron made it possible for shopkeepers to order cast iron storefronts directly out of a catalog from the early 1850s and on the new iron created storefronts that were much lighter in appearance than say masonry or stone and it produced <coughs> models capable of spanning greater distances and accommodating larger windows than ever before the first cast iron storefronts were plain post and lintel construction but before too long Victorian buildings turned ornate. The storefronts were, if anything, even more extravagant than most constructions. During the period of handsome new storefronts with large, invitingly transparent plate glass windows, the modern display window was born. Often quite elaborately decorated, the display window soon became critical to success in the competitive downtown type environment. To create even more display space, shop windows began to slant inward toward the recessed doorway. The strikingly luminous windows of the cast iron structural uh, time period uh, ruled, ruled the beginning of the Victorian to the 1920s. So let's talk about plate glass continued on. So plate glass provided the means to build a new breed of storefront. As window size grew, changes in installation came about. Bigger windows tended to have more moisture condensation problems inside, so small vent holes along the bottom edge were introduced to help equalize the temperature on either side of the glass. Larger cast iron storefronts and the appeal of even larger windows led to placing two sheets of plate glass in a single frame, supported by and divided by a vertical rail by the turn of the century. The wooden frames of the cast iron air could no longer tolerate the moisture and weight and with that came all all the glass involved and new methods were sought. The solution was a system of rolled metal frames and clips that is still in use today. The actual placement and maintenance of plate glass is best performed by professional glazers. The first point to be made is that it is very desirable to preserve existing vintage plate glass. The highly polished glass of past decades is, once again, no longer made. And float glass, the unpolished successor, cannot duplicate the luminosity of the original product. Where a plate glass display window has to be replaced, a strong effort should be made to match as closely as possible the size, color, and reflective quality of the original glass. Truncating the proportions of a display window in an attempt to save the glass or, or heat save glass or heat destroys the original design of a storefront. Often with ludicrous results. Conversely, peeling back misguided remodeling attempts and restoring plate glass windows to their original large dimensions is very often a dramatic and surprisingly modern-looking improvement. Tinted glass is inappropriate for storefronts in most cases. It should never be used as a replacement for clear plate. Use of safety glass is a legal requirement for public access areas. Where these codes apply, temper safety glass is closer to the the look of plate glass than plastic laminate types. Like bent glass, tempered glass is custom ordered and can be cut. Concerned about heat loss through large display windows has doomed much plate glass in the past. Without justification, though, large display windows typically contribute only minor amounts of total losses in heat. The real <clears throat> the real culprits are usually uninsulated roofs such as as much as 50% of loss and ceiling problems in doors, Moving windows, etc. So, resorting immediately to thermal pane conversions may mean an irreplaceable loss to gain at best a 50% improvement in the minor heat loss through the windows. So, let's talk about expanses of glass. By 1900, technological improvements in plate glass manufacture were slashing production time. The most important was the development in 1897 of the first continuous cooling process, which reduced annealing time from three days to three hours. With all this was taking place, stronger and longer steel I-beams were enabling, um, I-beams were making cast iron, lintels obsolete, and window openings much, much larger. So according to a 1902 building manual, In the principal retail stores of large cities, it has become custom to make the entire front of the store one large window, with lights of plate glass from six to 10 feet wide and seven to eight feet high, with other lights about three to four feet high above them. These latter lights were transom windows, which have (coughs) been appearing in storefronts from around 1880. And some of these were to let some ventilation in, they were operable. Around the turn of the century, an entrepreneur named Francis Pym was experimenting with a method of setting heavy plate glass display windows in metal instead of wood, which was subject to rot. In 1906, Pym founded the Corneer Company to market his new metal moldings. At first, the fledgling company made only a few moldings, later doors and windows, and still later entire storefronts. This early 20th century shift from wood to a metal glass setting system ushered in the era of the disposable storefront, which has lasted to this day. Storefronts, always subject to the whims of fashion, were henceforth mere wrappers that could be discarded and replaced in response to the slightest change in taste. In the early decades of the 20th century, the flat-roofed one-story commercial block were made in its appearance on Main Street. This construction consisted of the merest frame of masonry and metal around its real raison d'etre, a large piece of polished plate glass. Meanwhile, larger plate glass display windows were being retrofitted in buildings erected during this period and the previous decades. In these retrofitted, retrofitted storefronts, as in the new, one-story commercial blocks. Metal strips replaced cast iron or wood as framing. Around 1910, glass started playing an even more prominent role in storefronts in the new transparent expanses of plate glass began to be topped by fancy transoms. Also, these transoms, transoms were made of prismatic glass which was not only decorative, but also diffused light as it entered the store. One of the most popular manufacturers, the American Luxford Prism Company claimed in a 1926 ad that its prismic glass tiles used in transoms were the only method ever devised for the perfect daylighting of dark stores. Transoms, like the like many, suddenly began appearing in storefronts across the country it was no coincidence that the stores were staying open later and later and that their electric lighting was a new and still relatively large expense. The lens and prism glass. By the 1920s, specialized transom glass that redirected daylight into buildings was a part of a wooden storefront design. With several firms in competition, each tile manufacturer claimed His product was scientifically designed. Tiles of the American Prism Company, for example, operated in a dual mode. Their outdoor prism surfaces caught near vertical rays of sunlight and refracted them horizontally into the store. Inside the backs of the tiles had small lenses intended to collect ambient light and broadcast it around the room. Manufacturers, glass companies' tiles had a similar purpose. They, they pressed glass lenses f- <clears throat> formed on both sides and were meant to evenly distribute daylight around rooms, but operate in an obsolete and thus private translucent window. While the Press Prism Plate Glass Company manufactured sheet ornamental prism glass, Luxor and manufacturers made 4 by 4 inch tiles that had to be built up into leaded Transom panels, the Luxor design even used jointed edges to simply assemble assemble the, of the items. Whole panels could also be incorporated with ornamental prism tiles for decorative effects. Transom windows for ventilation, or advertising signs made from art glass in these transom areas. So, neither Luxor nor the competitor is in business but the look of lensed or prism glass is still highly appropriate for early 20th century storefronts. At its peak popularity, the Luxor transom was a design development as much as it was a lighting device. To satisfy this market, the company produced complete pressed glass panels of tile lookalikes for strictly decorative use only. Today, many a storefront can regain its prism transom by simply unearthing it. After decorative transoms became passe in the 1920s, most were not removed, but just covered over with signboards, new facade materials, or paint. Restoration can be as straightforward as possible and as desired as removing these elements, stripping the paint and cleaning. So where repairs are needed, to lead comes the art glass signs. Craftspeople with a background in stained glass can usually be found to do the work. Exact replacements for lens or prism tiles are usually unavailable, but glazing in squares or textured glass, such as cathedral rib, bathroom glass, such as reed light, or even frosted glass with appropriate <laughs> with the approximate tile effect. Let's talk about glass block. So, glass blocks see use in making light-transmitting panels, decorative accents, and other non-structural applications. They are made from two clear pressed glass halves sealed together. They are installed with cement mortar, which is the same as brick, but often require additional materials such as expansion strips or reinforcing bars. For large panels... And now let's get into the 20th century. In the ideal storefront of the post-war effort, transoms were even more whimsically ornate. Sometimes the name of the store was made out of stained glass and incorporated into the prismic glass transom. Entire glass stained canopies appeared. In the meantime, street frontage in many big cities was becoming ever more expensive. So designers created narrower, deeper store entrances. By by deeply recessing doorways and adding vestibules and and canopies, they gave the illusion of space and depth. Bent glass, which is plate glass again, reheated and reformed into curves of varying degrees, was used to enhance the funneling effect and appropriate merchants with display space that was even more alluring than ever. By 1923, plate glass was being made in continuous sheets from furnace to cooling tunnel. The age of the machine had truly arrived and it was epitomized by the Art Deco and streamlined modern storefronts of the 1930s and 40s. Pigmented structural glass, better known as trade's name Carrara glass, became the favorite material of storefront designers and storefront like Ray's became all the rage from coast to coast. Jewelers and confectioners were particularly enamored by the deco look. Manufactured by a number of glass companies, pigmented structural glass was available in a range of colors, including black, white, gray, tranquil green, Rembrandt blue, and even mottled agate. The glass consisted of a mass of colored crystals in a glass matrix, including the depth of color imposable in a material with a simple color coated surface. Structural glass was made much of the time as a way of, of the glass was manufactured, except it was generally ground and polished on the one side only. On shop exteriors, structural glass was first appeared in place of marble on the bulkheads and below display windows then as cladding for the first rest of the store. Glass took over the entire storefront within a couple of years. Carrara glass could be sculpted into squares, circles, and other geometric shapes. Fluting could be etched into it, as could storefront names and other designs. Structural glass was also amiable to the curves of the roundest corners leading to stylish, deeply recessed entrees. Glass blocks, meanwhile, made glowing, translucent windows. So as Charles H. Leibs points out in the, the Main Street to Miracle Mile, Art Deco, and streamlined modern storefronts, there is a kind of commercial med- <clears throat> medicine where, it, where uh, it is concocted by the new industrial designers for glass fronts. With the country in the throes of the Great Depression, shopkeepers desperately needed to simulate sales. So they constantly jackhammered into their public consciousness through art deco, geometrics, and streamlined modern curves. That good times, prosperous, technology advanced, up to date, were right around the corner, as these terms were used. So, um... Everything you wanted to know about storefront glass, Greg Perry, the uh, Historic Preservationist, signing off. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for listening.